Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. In this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is Tish Harrison-Warren. Tish is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America and the author of two books with InterVarsity Press. She also has written regularly for The Well, CT Women, and Christianity Today. She and her husband, Jonathan, currently live and serve in Pittsburgh with their three young children. In this interview, Tish shares with us about her latest book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. She shares how the book came to be and how the practice of praying Compline has been a solace in difficult times. With the exception of a few articles that I have read here and there, this book was my first introduction to Tish's writing, and I was surprised by how much her words resonated with me. Just as much, our conversation about allowing ourselves to embrace our vulnerability, giving ourselves permission to mourn, and finding hope even in the midst of suffering was such a gift to me. We so hope it will be meaningful to you as well. Well, thank you so much, Tish, for being a guest on the podcast today. Since we've had you on before, we'll skip some of the intro stuff and just jump right in. You recently wrote the book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. Can you share a little bit about how this book came to be and what your hopes are for it as it launches out into the world this winter? Sure. Well, it came to be, I had written Liturgy of the Ordinary. And so InterVarsity Press was saying, you know, write another book, write another book. And I actually had kind of a different idea for another book and was planning on writing that. And when I went on retreat to some friends went out of town and sort of let me use their house to write in. And so I was going to write a different book. And then this book just kept sort of coming back to me like a cat that you feed and doesn't <laughs> go away. It just kept coming. And sort of uh, once I had the idea of writing something framed around this particular prayer, I just wouldn't let me go. And I didn't exactly want to do it because the book really begins with me wrestling with how do you trust God? How is God good in the middle of when life is hard and things are rough? And in 2017, I moved across the country and I and I had two miscarriages and my father passed away. And it was a hard, dark year, not, you know, the world's worst catastrophe. It was sort of normal suffering, but in the sense that like many women have miscarriages, Mm. almost all of us lose a parent at some point or experience death of a loved one of some kind. And a lot of people move across the country or are homesick. So it was kind of the ordinary hard things of life that all of us walk through, or many of us walk through. But I, it just raised questions for me about how to trust God, how to keep walking the way of Jesus in the middle of that. And so I kind of didn't, I was ready to move on. I didn't want to have to sit with, I mean, that was partly why I wanted to do a different book, because I didn't want to have to sit with all of with all of that sort of grief and questions again. So in the set, I think it's in the second chapter or first, I actually don't remember. I guess it's the second. I said something like, if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, because we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, then mm-hmm. how do we trust him at all? And I wrote yeah. that question 
And I had nothing else to say. I didn't know the answer. So I just stopped writing for like probably five, six days. Like I just, I would come back and try to write. And I just couldn't, I just sort of sat with that question and was like, I just can't, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And it really took me pounding out about 75,000 words, meditating on this prayer. And then you know, editing down those words to about 50,000. It took me just writing all of my struggle before I could really honestly answer the question so that I could come to some kind of simplicity on the far side of complexity. Mm -hmm. So that's how the book started. It really kind of came to me and was out of my own questions and struggles. And it just wouldn't let me go until... I mean, I think God just wanted me to face this stuff. And so that's how I wrote the book. Yeah, thank you. There are two things that come to mind as you share about how it came to be. The idea of not wanting to sit with your pain. And that seems so, for lack of a better word, normal for most people. As a counselor, I often see people come in that either they've been trying to distract themselves with all sorts of other things Mm -hmm. to not have to sit with their pain or they've stored it up and shoved it down for so long that eventually it will come back out, right? In ways that are super unhelpful. Yeah. Um, So as I was reading your book, there were many clients that came to mind that I was thinking of, this is such a great book because it addresses that question of, is God trustworthy? And if he's, you know, if he can't keep us safe or can't keep bad things from happening to us, how can we trust him? And your book is shaped around the compline prayer. Can you say a little bit more about the compline and sort of what your relationship with that prayer has been? Yeah, sure. Okay, so Compline is the nighttime prayer office of particularly, well, in my case, the Anglican Church, but a lot of liturgical traditions, including Roman Catholic and Lutheran, have Compline or nighttime prayer services. Praying at night is a long, long, long tradition of the church. Monks used to get up and pray as still do. Monks that follow the hours still do get up in the middle of the night when it's still dark and pray. Even before then, I mean, we have as early in the third century that Christians would get up and do nighttime vigils, sometimes at midnight, Mm. and pray in the middle of the night. So the book isn't so much a, it's not a, you should pray Compline. Here's five easy steps to do it. It's it's nothing. Right. Like, it's it's not really a apologetic for Compline or even really a how to. It uses Compline as a, a framing device around sort of these deeper questions about prayer and following God. And the reason it does is because when I went through that in 2017, and in general, I'm realizing because this has happened many times since that when I'm struggling with grief or anxiety or any kind of like difficulty in life, nights Mm -hmm. become really hard for me because like you said, it's a time that you, everything sort of slows down and you're left with the questions or you're left with the pain, you're left with the doubts Mm -hmm. or the worries. So I would fill up nights with distracting material. And so I would just stay up late and be on Netflix and read political articles and like stuff that was fine on the surface, except that I completely filled my nights with it because I couldn't sit still. And something about the vulnerability, the starkness of darkness made everything feel, you know, bigger. So I had begun years ago praying Compline, which is a nighttime prayer service 
that's very gentle. That's very like, it's kind of soporific. It's like, it makes you kind of sleepy and it's sort of whispering. And yet it's really, it really acknowledges darkness and death and mortality and human vulnerability. So I have really grown to love Compline and it's been an important part of my nighttime prayer, especially in the years leading up to writing this book. And so I took one prayer, my favorite prayer, out of that book, which says, Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. And all for your love's sake. Amen. So I took that prayer and framed the book around all of that because it kind of goes into each disposition of struggle of weeping and working and watching, but also goes into really specific like death and suffering Mm -hmm. and affliction and joy even. But then it all culminates in the love of God and the book really culminates in the love of God. So that's where that came from. It came from my own practice of years and years of of reading Compline. And Compline came from a long tradition of the church of received prayers, prayer offices, like praying at certain times of the day. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for reading it as well. In addition to the shaping of the book around that prayer, there's so much in there about vulnerability, and it's sort of one of the threads throughout the book. Uh, You wrote about the origins of the word vulnerable coming from the Latin to wound. So essentially Mm -hmm. allowing ourselves to be vulnerable is to put ourselves in a position of possible wounding or to be woundable. Could you say more about how you have seen vulnerability to be beneficial in your life, both in your relationship with God and with others, even as you put yourself at risk to be wounded? Yeah. So part of the reason that I talked about the roots of vulnerability. I mean, one thing is I'm a little bit obsessed with words and their stories and where they came from. And (laughs) I love, (laughs) I love like roots of words and the linguistic like process that brings us words. But I brought that up in the book because vulnerability, it's something that we sort of generally as a culture, kind of as pop culture right now, we talk about vulnerability a lot and we mean sort of something often we mean something that's chosen, like she was vulnerable or she lives her life in a way that's really open and beautiful and vulnerable. And I think that's a perfectly fine, good use of the term. That is certainly within the range of meaning of the term. But my book deals more with vulnerability that we all have, whether we want to or not. I mean, Mm -hmm. the fact is all humans are able to be wounded both in our bodies and in our minds and in our spirits. Like we are just born. I mean, I have a little one-year-old, like we're just born so vulnerable, so vulnerable, obviously. I mean, it's so obvious with babies, like so vulnerable to the elements, to our need for food. Like we need other human beings to take care of us or we die. But Mm -hmm. then we have that as well emotionally. I mean, we're just so vulnerable from our earliest state emotionally and spiritually. And so I talk about vulnerability there as this basic ingredient of being human. And the person who, you know, wants to deny their vulnerability and be tough as nails at the end of the day is just so vulnerable. Like we're all just so weak. Mm -hmm. Uh, The strongest among us are weak. And 
you know, I mean, you see this, like take a big, tough kind of cowboy guy and uh, just, you know, give him the flu and he's just needy. Right. Like, mm-hmm. And so, and, and all of our lives are built out of pretty flimsy material on our own, at least. What I mean is our intelligence and the things that we sort of go to, to make life work for us. Everything I say in the book, everything from like the electrical grid to our own sanity is not something that we make happen. And so we're all very, very vulnerable. And so as I wrote this book that became important to me, just because it's remarkable that God allows that. I mean, God doesn't give us invulnerability. That's never part of the deal. That's never what Jesus came to give. There's something about humans where we are just irreducibly needy or irreducibly creaturely. And we rely on other people and we rely on God, not just till the day we die, but even after, even in the resurrection. I feel like vulnerability would be different. I'm not trying to speak into eternal vulnerability or something. Although we do see that even in the garden, when everything was right, Adam and Eve needed one another. We were just never these autonomous supermen and superwomen. We never were. Mm. We never will be. So for me, recognizing vulnerability in different parts of my life, like through mortality, but also through just my fallenness and brokenness in relationships as this constant, as this thing that's just going to be there in my life. It's always going to be something I bump up against and has been really helpful because I think even though I spent all that time talking about how inevitable vulnerability is, a lot of us, myself certainly included, spend our life on this kind of wild dash to be invulnerable or to make ourselves Mm -hmm. less vulnerable, to be unwoundable. We avoid thinking about our mortality. We avoid thinking about our weakness. And a lot of us who have enough privilege in America can try to sort of manage our way into life going well for us or for our children. And we can sort of think if we plan well enough, if we're organized enough, if we're whatever successful enough, if we're likable enough, if we're interesting enough, we can make it where life doesn't hurt. And we can, mm-hmm. as Harwa says, we, we trick ourselves into thinking that we can get out of this life alive. And it's a lie. And it's a crazy making lie. And so I think that the church has a long, long tradition of recognizing our mortality. And I think we need to do that in a broader sense. I think we need to learn to recognize our vulnerability. I think this was something that was somewhat intuitive to generations before us because things like illness and death and I don't know, even just depending on the sunrise and sunset, Mm -hmm. we're so much more we're just part more part of our daily life. So vulnerability was part of our daily life in a way that I think with modernity, we think we can beat it. You know, we think we can get ahead of it. We can. <laughs> and Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, th- this can go extreme, right. With like the, there are movements to try to like make man immortal through technology and that sort of thing. But we think we can kind of get ahead of our human vulnerability. But I think that that produces a really, really warped way of living in the world and a warped view of God. So I think just constantly coming back to ourselves as creatures and as vulnerable creatures is part of worship. It's really part of what we have to offer the world. The truth of Christianity is in part that we were not made to be God. 
you know, and so I think that that is something that we have to offer the world as believers. Yeah. And I love that you describe it as maybe not as much a, like choosing into vulnerability, but allowing yourself to recognize your vulnerability. And even as you mentioned the vulnerability of a baby thinking right now, as we're recording this in Advent, it'll come out later, but thinking of Jesus coming into the world in that same vulnerable position as a baby and allowing ourselves to recognize that if God's going to allow himself to be vulnerable, to lean into it ourselves as well is not weakness, but a way of, I don't know, experiencing more of our understanding of who Jesus is, but also understanding who God is, that we're small and he's the one caring for us. Yeah. An amazing thing that sort of, I told you the book itself was me sort of like figuring out these questions that I kept coming back through throughout the book that I understand is like somewhat obvious, but was not obvious to my heart in any way until I wrote this book, but just how Jesus entered into every kind of vulnerability. I mean, just the fullness of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. not just on the cross, but in his life, you know, of being obscure, of having Mm -hmm. common colds, of having broken relationships, of having like real struggles with his family. And that had to be stressful, stressful conversations, conflict, all of it. And so I had this question of kind of how do we trust God who doesn't stop bad things from happening and realize like, well, God didn't stop bad things from happening to God. which is just a mystery. And all of this at the end of the day is a mystery. It's too big for us. But I think there is the way that Christianity deals with suffering, talks about suffering, is just radically different than anything else in the world, than any other world religion also, but any other solution offered by broader secular culture or consumerism. It's just Mm -hmm. the idea that God himself is in suffering and we meet him there. And Jesus beat us there in some sense, got there before us and and knew us the fullness of human vulnerability. It's a wonder. I mean, it's a wonder we're all sort of contemplating as a church this time of year, but it's a wonder that we'll, I don't think we'll all ever get over it. I mean, I don't think we, I don't think we should ever get over it, I guess is what I mean. Yeah. The mystery sitting in the wonder of God becoming human. Yeah. And God just like, God did not make himself invulnerable. I mean, God is, God is God. God is all powerful. And yet God became small and entered into vulnerability, which in and of itself, just it's mind bending, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. my kids are always like the Trinity is just crazy. It doesn't make sense. And I, at the end of the day, I'm like, I know, I mean, it, that's right. So I think that the way that Christianity talks about suffering is radically different because the center of it is the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so it just changes. I I say this in the book, we're not given an answer at the end. There's not like a, there's not a reason for suffering. There's not a, okay. It's not because we've sinned. It's not because like you've Mm -hmm. done a bad thing and, or you don't have enough faith or It's not because, I don't know, like we need to shed ourselves of our material commitments to the world and live in pure spirituality, and then we will be free of suffering. It's not because in Christianity, it's not just because like the world is random and there's no meaning to any of this. And we're just sort of, you know, cells bumping up against other cells and atoms bumping up against other atoms. We're given the story. We're we're not given an answer. We're given a story and the Mm -hmm. story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That 
is the story in which we live. And that's the story in which suffering can find any meaning whatsoever and for the Christian. And so I guess what I'm saying is going back to the center of that story being that this God who suffered is this super unique and surprising, deeply surprising sort of response of Christians to suffering. Hmm. Yeah. And related to that, you write about the importance of learning to weep. And you wrote, in a culture that's increasingly committed to nursing every grievance, there's deep wisdom in being able to name what is right and whole about life, to keep moving forward despite obstacles, to have a wider perspective, to look hardship in the eye and laugh. But the dark side of this resistance to grief is that we do not learn to grieve ordinary suffering and loss, the commonplace but nonetheless heavy burdens we each carry. As long as anyone had it worse, which is always, I felt I didn't have permission to be sad, to weep, to mourn. Can you say more about how you learned to allow yourself to weep and how you've experienced Jesus in leaning into your grief? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a book I just never, ever, ever thought I would write. I never thought I would write a book on sorrow or suffering because all in all, my life has been pretty good. And so I thought that only people who could write books like this are people who have experienced things that in my mind are the very worst suffering. So some other kind of just deep, deep, deep catastrophe, life altering catastrophe. And so my family culture growing up was sort of, you know, like keep going, move forward. You know, I'm, I'm a seventh generation Texan. So it, it's okay. sort of pioneer, <laughs> like the world is hard and you keep going and you make the best of it. And so for me, I just can often feel like I don't have permission to grieve or that it's whining. And so I have had to learn to make space for regular old, ordinary grief. Just all of us, and I make this point in the book, experience grief. It's just part of, we were not made for a world where relationships are broken, where people die, where we get sick, even where we can't make the world safe, perfectly safe for our children. Mm -hmm. We were created for glory and for beauty. And so I have had to learn to grieve, like my actual stuff, like the stuff in my actual life and not simply just say, well, you know, it could have been worse or it's not as bad as this person or it's, um, Mm -hmm. you know, here, look at the bright side, here are the good things. And I'm certainly not against looking at the bright side, but if you only, if you go to that compulsively and you don't stop and grieve, I think that we not only are missing out on truth, on the fullness of what it means to be human, but we're missing out on God. We're not living in reality because reality holds grief for every single one of us. So I've had to really learn to take up grief as a spiritual practice, not to take it up as the only spiritual practice or to let it swamp the entire boat, but to have grieving as part of my life, to give myself permission to grieve, even when it's not a catastrophic situation. It's just a situation that's sad. And that can be like, you know, my baby has strep throat. I know he's going to be fine. He doesn't have strep throat, but this would be an example. My, <laughs> sure. I know he's going to be fine. I know that a lot of people deal with this, but I'm sad. I'm sad that this is happening this week. That sort of level of kind of granular grief, ordinary suffering is something I just would never, ever let myself admit as grief. And so I think part of learning how it is to trust God in the midst of bad things happening 
is learning for me to grieve, is learning to grieve these ordinary losses. And of course, that doesn't mean every time my kid gets the cold or gets strep throat that I'm like a puddle of tears, like I'm not functional, but that's not what Mm -hmm. grief means. I mean, grief for me is just really holding space and making time to let myself be honest about the sadness and loss that I feel, however big those are, but also however small those might be. So shifting gears a little bit, I read an article this fall about the tendency for some women, especially working moms, to stay up late because it's the only time that they can find for silence and introspection. And I know you talked earlier about how you would stay up late and kind of fill up with distractions and Netflix and check Facebook and this sort of thing. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how the concepts in your book, Prayer in the Night, can be a gift to women who are finding themselves in this boat of like nighttime being the only time for silence. Yeah. So I think for me, honestly, if that's the time that you can get for like silence and contemplation, I mean, that's great. And I mentioned, it's very brief, but I mentioned in the book about a friend of mine who loves to pray at night. He goes and walks outside and prays. I feel like that, I mean, I don't just feel like this. There's actually studies that say that that tends to be a male phenomenon because women have a different experience of vulnerability walking at night because of Mm -hmm. prime right? Because of crimes against women. So, but if night is like the quiet contemplative time, I think that's part of the gift of night is we slow down. For me, I filled it up. I mean, I filled night up with distractions. In other words, partly because I think I was tired, but also that wasn't a time of like reading or contemplation. And increasingly I was trying to make it that by taking up things like Compline and quiet at night. And I do that still sometime. We have now candles in the fireplace. And so nights have become a little, they've become important to me in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I have, again, I have have a 10 year old and a seven year old and a one year old. So I completely get like, if nights are the times you have that's wonderful. This is certainly not a like, you should only do compliment night or you should go to bed early. But for me, I wasn't using nights as contemplation. I was using nights as like filling largely with TV, with distraction. I was running from the quiet. So in general, I think I don't have, I mean, I hope my book is an encouragement to women that to moms or dads that find night times to be like the only space they have. I think actually it would be beautiful to think about my book, to read my book in those nighttime spaces. So this isn't, again, like it's not so much a like, here's how you should be using your nights. But I do think all of us in our culture need a lot more contemplation. We are very busy and we're very distracted. And we have to learn to sort of slow down and take that when it comes. And if that's nighttime hours, I mean, that's amazing. That was not what I was using night for. And I guess this book has changed that somewhat. I still struggle not to just fill up nights with distractions. This is just a pattern for me, but I much, much more want to go tonight and be willing to sort of slow down, let go, admit my tiredness, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and embrace those kinds of activities. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, yeah, I read your book at night, but not because that's what you have to do, right? But that was the only time with my kids being home all day now during this pandemic with school and working the other times that I'm not 
with my kids. So when they were finally asleep, I was able to read your book, which was lovely and a better use of my time than like going on Twitter for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I like that you brought up even that the difference between night for men versus women, not even if you're going outside at night, but even just the idea. I wonder if night is experienced differently in general for men and women. I wonder if there are research studies on this about like the ability to fall asleep and that sort of thing. And Well, so they are really different. I, I don't actually talk about any of this in the book. Like I don't get into this except for somewhat in the footnotes. <laughs> right. So people should look into the footnotes if they're interested in this because I cite some articles on it. So all of us experience vulnerability and darkness. So even sort of the most kind of macho man, you know, whatever, strong, not afraid of anything guy, if you put him in deep darkness for long enough, if he's out in the woods completely alone for long enough, he gets afraid because all of us experience vulnerability and darkness is part of that for all of us. Sight makes us feel safe. But there are all kinds of surveys and studies that basically, well, after the Me Too movement, there was a question put out, I don't know if it was by a journalist or who, of what, what would you do if there were no men for a day? What oh, yeah, I remember that. And some crazy amount, it was like over 90% of women said they would just walk around at night. Um, mm -hmm. That's something yeah. they felt like they couldn't do. And women experience sleep differently. We need more sleep. That's Duke uh, University did a study that mm -hmm. women, I actually wrote about this for The Well a long, long time ago. I haven't written about it since, but it's somewhere in the Well archives of women needing more sleep than men. Mm -hmm. It's like a fact. So it's science. That's what I tell my husband. <laughs> it's because of science. So there are some gender differences. My book is not specifically focused on women because like I said, all human beings experience vulnerability at night. And even throughout scripture, darkness and night is often associated with like sin and evil and the brokenness in the world. Heaven talks about there, there will be no night. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how literal that is, but it, certainly night in that is a symbol of things gone awry in the world. So the book is for men and women alike, but I do think women and men who have daughters and wives that they love experience vulnerability in a specific kind of way. And I bring this up a lot in the book. I mean, in my chapter on affliction, I talk about how folks with mental illness, there's been a lot of studies that that gets worse at night. Um, dementia, patients experience sundowning, which is dementia gets worse at night. I worked with a homeless population for a long time. And that for men and women alike, homelessness, night's a real threat. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who experiences, it seems like most people, I shouldn't say everyone, but it seems like most people who experience any kind of vulnerability in our society experience it more profoundly at night. If night makes all of us more vulnerable, those who are more vulnerable to begin with sort of feel that more, can absorb that less. And so that includes women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even as a counselor, so much of my work, we talk about how are you sleeping? Like, are you able to fall asleep at night? And that big piece of mental health 
And also I would be remiss to not note that you quote a couple of my favorite bands in your book. And one of those is Over the (laughs) Rhine (laughs) and Over the Rhine and their quote from one of their songs that is, who will guard the door while I am sleeping. That idea kind of throughout your book of that vulnerability, like who is watching out for us, who is guarding the door, so to speak. Yeah. I do quote really good music in the book. Like You do. I feel like the quotes... Even if you just took out everything I said out, the quotes, and I quote great thinkers too, like the quotes are worth the price of the book, just for the quotes. <laughs> I love music. I mean, my first draft was out of control. It was just like endless amounts of Rich Mullins quotes and other band, nice. other bands. And I, so I took a lot of them out, but there's still a lot. Byron Borger just wrote a review, of, the first review of the book and noted that I quote, I quote a lot of good music. You do. You do. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading it. Right. And I think I even maybe woke my husband up to say she quotes over the Rhine (laughs) and they're my band. So, oh yeah. I'm a huge fan. We have their albums and we have them on vinyl now because we're getting into that. And we, I've seen them in concert. I don't know, a billion times. I've seen them a lot in concert. So yeah, likewise for like, since I was in high school. So okay, time now it's like over 20 years. Yeah, I've, I think I was introduced to them my freshman year of college, and they're actually from my hometown, Cincinnati, so cool. that's that connection to you. So I have to say it's pretty intense, my love for them, but that's not what this podcast is about. But <laughs> if you don't know Over the Rhine, if, you, if that's all they get from this podcast is that they should check out Over the Rhine. Then yeah, that would be a fine thing to get from the podcast. It would yeah. be, indeed. Okay, so anyway, shifting gears a bit again. As we talked about earlier, the concept of vulnerability is one of the main threads throughout the book. And you write specifically about people you know and respect that have allowed themselves to recognize their vulnerability and how you see this. I mean, you write this beautiful metaphor saying, the people who I most respect are those who have suffered but did not numb their pain, who face their darkness. In the process, they have become beautifully weak, not tough as nails, not bitter or rigid, but men and women who bear vulnerability with joy and trust. They are almost luminescent, like a paper lantern, weak enough that the light shines through. Can you share more about how the vulnerability of others has helped shape your faith? Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool you're asking me this question on the Well podcast, because when I originally wrote that, it was about a very specific person. It was about Marsha Bosher, who mm-hmm. was my former editor at The Well with Women in the Academy and Professions. So I wrote that about Marsha and she's a widow and, you know, she's just lived life. So all of us have had some suffering in this world, but somehow she was able to just embrace this kind of she was able to embrace the the vulnerability of that and through that knew this kind of like luminescent joy mm. that didn't come from her being all put together, but came for me most often in her sharing her own questions and her own struggles. And she was a mentor of mine and really is the reason I write. And that started with her editing me for the wealth mm. and being part of WAP. And then Eventually, my editor said, you need to expand this because even though you love and know Marsha, your readers aren't going to have heard of this person. So you need to make this more (laughs) generally about like more generally about people in your life or people in our lives that have this because other people are going to think of their person that they know that I hope listeners are privileged to know someone who's been through some pain 
And instead of it making them like tough as nails or bitter, you know, uh, joy killers of others uh, going around and telling everyone to have low expectations of life and to be angry like they are. I mean, Mm -hmm. I do think pain can warp people. It can make them hardened and bitter. But then I've also known, I've seen pain make people more open to life, more, more able to sort of receive and give love, more compassionate and empathetic, and even more deeply rooted in joy, more deeply rooted in the source of joy. And so those folks are like who I want to be when I grow up. It just feels like they've, I don't know, they've, they've learned about God in a way that I want to learn about God. I just think the older you get, man, the pain in life becomes really inevitable. And my husband, this may be a, a different book in the future, but my husband and I have this saying that you burn out, numb out, or go deep. And that when you face pain, especially when you get sort of closer to middle age, I think pain comes faster or brokenness just becomes more apparent. And certainly 2020 has done this. I mean, I just think the brokenness in the world is getting really loud. And I think all of us have, I mean, it's become a meme, right? Of kind of this difficult year. And I think we can either numb out, just try to distract. And you see people do this all kinds of ways through shopping or through, you know, kind of trying to like buy our way out of life being hard or through, I mean, it could be anything through endless TV or through internet or Instagram. We just sort of numb, 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 or we burn out. Like you get bitter and hardened and despair give up on the world and the extreme of that would be obviously like suicide or um, Mm -hmm. but but even before that I think we shut down we kill relationships we hive ourselves off from God and other people we try to make ourselves impenetrable and, and hardened and we burn out in the process of doing that or you go deep go deep into the things of God go deep into the tradition of the church go deep into encounters with the the triune god like encounters with god but also with other people go deep into community into place rooting yourself into things that are true and good and beautiful and so i feel like for me like mentors that are people who have i can think of several i mean i, I think of marcia but i think of our friend jack who certainly has walked through pain and deep disappointment in his life and is just quick to weep. He's quick to grieve. He cries a lot and is moved a lot, but he's very quick to laugh. And he's very quick to sort of celebrate and embrace goodness. And I find so much hope in seeing folks who life didn't destroy them. Or maybe that's not even the best way of saying it. Life did destroy them. And then there was resurrection on the other side mm-hmm. of it. And I can see that in, in the lives of people that I look up to. Yeah. Yeah. So numb out, burn out, or go deep. And that deep connection with Jesus or the triune God, as well as people allowing yourself to connect in that vulnerability rather than build up a wall. I imagine the contrast between the paper lantern is sort of that brick wall that people often will build around themselves after suffering, like not to let anyone in and just to harden, to try to avoid being vulnerable. 
but mm-hmm. really yeah. the wall is, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a mirage. So kind of along with that, you share a story about after the long year of experiencing suffering in 2017, that you had a vivid dream that reflected back to you some of your own struggles with trusting God. And you pared it down to two questions that many of us are asking of God in our core selves. What are you like? And do you love us? Mm-hmm. And how has discovering these core questions and sitting with them helped you find healing? Yeah, well, I think some of it is I've made friends with my questions. Like I realize mm-hmm. that they're all always going to sort of be there. I mean, I think I'm going to have to keep coming back to God with those questions. And I tell that in the context of my daughter asking us the same questions sort of over and over and over and realizing that's okay. I don't need to shut those questions down or, I mean, I'm a priest and I'm a writer, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I still feel like we have to keep coming back to God and saying like, tell me who you are again. Remind me who you are coming back to the scriptures. Who Who is this God we serve? Because the world is always going to sort of give us, if we're looking at the circumstances of our lives to know who God is, it's always going to be this really inconclusive picture. And so I think we keep coming back. And then this question of, do you love us? I mean, it can sound so trite in a way, but man, it's like at the end of the day, it's just what our hearts are set on. Is the love of God real? Is it enough to actually bear the weight of our soul's And so, I mean, I've just come to see these questions as completely the shape of our worship. I mean, it's what we do each Sunday in gathered worship is we remind each other, this is who God is. This is the God we serve. And this is how he loves us. We do that through the preaching. We do that through the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. We just constantly go back to these same questions. Who is God? And how does he feel about us? What is his relationship to us? Is, is he out to get us in, in a malicious way? Or is he out to love us? And I think this is a big statement, I know. And I'm sure, depending on how many people listen to this, someone will write me and say their life has proven this wrong. But I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that every human being, from Mother Teresa to an atheist, sits at the end of the day, some point in their life with these questions of, is there a God? What is God like? And does he love me? Does he care about me? Or does he mm-hmm. or it care about me? In this? And I think these are the questions that, that keep us up at night at the end of the day. I mean, and they may look different. They may look like what's going to happen in my future. Am I going to be able to have this relationship that I want? Or am I going to be able to deal with the suffering that I'm experiencing? Or are my needs going to be met? Are my very practical needs going to be met? Like, will I be able to get dinner on the table? We have all of these questions and those are very real questions. But a lot of those questions boil down to, is there a God? (laughs) What is he like? Does he love us? And so I feel like I'm going to keep coming to God with these questions. Now that said, I don't think I'm going to keep coming to God in these questions in the same way. I think that we can grow in trust of God. We can grow in knowledge of God. I know God in a way now that I didn't in years past, but it's a spiral. It's a spiral upward in the sense that the Christian life isn't some sort of straight line where, okay, now I have this knowledge. We're just sort of spiraling up where you hit the same question again and again, but you hit it maybe in a slightly different place or in a slightly Mm -hmm. different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm hoping no one writes to you to to argue with you about those two questions. I, I just can see an atheist being like, I'm an atheist and I don't actually think 
I don't actually ask myself if there's a God, but I, I'm not sure. I just think that like, man, like if we sit long enough with our questions and in a dark enough sort of, I mean, I'm thinking of sort of like camping out when, you know, when you're looking under the stars, like, I think there's just these questions that come up of like, man, what's the heart at the center of all of this mm-hmm. really is a unavoidable question for us. And I think those are really good questions. I think God loves and wants those questions. I think God lets us ask those questions and just continuously answers them. Like I bring up the story with her daughter. She just went through a period where she constantly said like, do you love me? And she would say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm asking again. But we would answer her every time. You just keep saying, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Because man, we all have kind of a crack right in us and it all sort of, it all kind of runs out. So I think we constantly have to be told again and again of the love that God has for us. Mm. Speaking of children, mine are knocking on my door. So I hope (laughs) you didn't hear them. So we'll wrap up here shortly, but two more questions. While the tone of your book could feel rather dark to some, right? Because you're asking people to sort of sit and acknowledge pain and suffering. It was strangely deeply comforting and a source of hope for me, kind of like a balm at the end of the day. Oh, that's great. I love yeah. to hear that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like I said, I'm you know, when I'm not working with women in the academy and professions or with my family, I'm serving as a counselor and, you know, listening to people's stories of pain and suffering And there was just something about your book that really brought a lot of comfort. Maybe it is that naming and acknowledging pain and suffering and allowing ourselves to invite Jesus into it. So it gave me a lot of hope. And you write about hope in the book. And one of the quotes you say is, the hope God offers us is this, he will keep close to us even in darkness, in doubt, in fear and vulnerability. He does not promise to keep bad things from happening. He does not promise that night will not come or that it will not be terrifying or that we will immediately be tugged to shore. He promises that we will not be left alone. He will keep watch with us in the night. Uh, I just loved that quote so much of just the idea of it. It can be terrible. It might be terrible. Inevitably, no one can avoid pain, but Jesus will be with us in it, and that that's the hope that he offers. Where are you personally finding hope these days? Because we need a lot of hope, right? Yeah, we do need a lot of hope. Okay, so I feel like saying, like, I'm finding hope in Jesus is such a theological answer. But I will say that something that 2020 has shown me in writing this book has shown me is like at the end of the day, man, my hope really is this story. My hope is that Jesus is going to come and set things right because there's not going to be an answer for this pandemic that's going to satisfy. There's not going to be some reason like, oh, this is why hundreds of thousands of people had to die. It's the only thing is that coronavirus will be judged. (laughs) Mm. There's a judge of darkness that will judge and defeat anything that is not truth and beauty and goodness. So there is a sense of like, man, it's this or nothing. Like my eggs are in one basket now. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's a hymn. But there is a sense of like, man, if this isn't true, if God isn't actually going to set things right, then man, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There really is no Mm. hope. But, but that can be very abstract. So what I have found is here's where I go awry in hope, which is not exactly what you're asking, but I promise I'll get to the, I'll get to the question on the other side of this. I have found that I often have looked for hope 
by fantasy in the future, like when things are all going to be perfect and everything's Mm going to be good and it'll all be right again, like in this life or by nostalgia back when everything was perfect (laughs) in the past Mm -hmm. and neither were true. The past wasn't perfect. Like I knew it at the time. And even after 2020, like, and I hate to say this to your listeners, but like even after COVID and even after you know, the political divisions that have been dividing our country, like things aren't going to be perfect. Like, like we will still have, there will still be darkness. There will still be enemies of God in the world and in, in our own hearts, right. In our own self. So I have really had to wrestle with that. I can find false hope in going forward or back in time. Mm. So one thing that has been helpful for me has been the practice of examine during the last few, really just the last couple months of looking for, okay, so Jesus, the story of his redemption is the ultimate hope, but where am I finding that in the present tense, in my present life right now? So trying to really seek hope in my actual day which could look like very small things. Like I'm trying to think of one just for yesterday was a time I had with my sister and my mom that was just beautiful. And there was full, there was all kinds of, my mom is aging and struggling with dementia. Hmm. And so there's all kinds of sorrow in that, but it's like wrapped around with so much beautiful moments of joy, like moments of goodness. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so seeing that as, man, that's God's work also. Like that's God bringing beauty in the midst of ugliness and light in the midst of darkness. Yeah. So really finding Jesus's presence in my actual present tense life has Mm -hmm. been a good practice for me. So hope has come a lot through COVID, like with night, like good moments with my children, good moments Mm -hmm. going on walks with people outside. We've been outside because of the pandemic. We've been outside probably more this year than we've been in a long time in years past. Like we just go, we go hiking a ton, but also just things like I had a cup of coffee with my sister yesterday. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we were outside, but yeah, it was, that was a gift. And so I think we were talking about Christmas coming and I know that this is going to be aired later, but you know, there's a sense of like, what is this even supposed to look like this year during the pandemic? And I think that there can be a temptation that just everything has to be like in America has to be just like exciting and fun and like holly jolly, like everything. And I right. just thought, I'm like raising narcissists if we feel like our kids need to look back on when there was a global pandemic and mass suffering and say like, it was so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think it's okay that things are hard for them. I think it's okay that things are hard for us. We're experiencing brokenness in the world. We're experiencing the fall. So it's okay that this isn't like a rip roaring good time, but Mm -hmm want to be able to see, what I want my kids to be able to see is amid the brokenness, look at this moment where God was coming after us, where God gave us this beautiful gift, where there was this joy that we weren't expecting, you know, mm-hmm. but yesterday, two days ago, there was, there was a rainbow and well, like what a, what a gift. So I don't want to be sentimental about this stuff. I don't want to say like, Hey, you've had the worst day of your life. You just lost your job. The pandemic's happening, but there's rainbows and coffee. Like that's, that's <laughs> I think there's a way that can be really trite 
here's what I'm saying. And I sort of talk about this in the book is that I think the source of all joy is God. But in order for that not to be just a complete abstraction, we experience that source. We experience God in the stuff of earth. And the word we use for that in Anglicanism is that life is sacramental mm-hmm. in this actual like stuff that you can touch and feel and taste. You are bumping up against something that's real that's lasting, that's eternal. And so there's a way that it can be like, you just had the worst day of your life, but good coffee, right? That advertisements are kind of trying to sell us on this, right? But if you get this face cream, your life will be fine. That's not what I mean. I mean, ultimately what we're after is the source of joy, the source of hope. But I think the only way that we can encounter that, that's not just purely cognitive and like this deep abstraction is to notice these gifts of God in the present tense. And so that's come a lot for me through relationships and through little unexpected gifts during COVID tide. So that's kind of my answer. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it reminds me of one of the practices we try to do with our family at dinner every day is to go around and share each of our children and ourselves as well, what our, we say, happiest and saddest parts of the day were. Yeah, we we do too. We do, we do, we we call them highs and lows, Nice. but everyone does their high and low, which if anyone's listening, it's a great, like, so examine is a much more sort of spiritually complex way of doing that. But if we're like five-year-olds, it's like a a great way to like set them up for things like examine in the future. But yeah, yeah, so we do highs and lows every day as well. That's so yeah. fun. Yeah. Ours are 12, 10 and well, now he's 11. So 12, 11 and eight. So it's a good, and even though if we forget to do it, they'll say, Hey, what was your happiest and saddest part of the day? Yeah. And I'm like, yay. But we'll <laughs> take it a step further, particularly with the saddest part and ask like, who was with you? Or, you know, where did you experience some goodness even in that moment? Right. Oh, so that no. it's, yeah. We don't um, do that. That's a really great, this is why we should talk to counselors more often. Cause we just go like, we don't do that. I love that. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where, I don't know that I picked this up from my counseling skills or practices. I don't know where I came up with this. It might've been through something, some spiritual practice. I mean, I based loosely it on the examine as well with the idea of reflection. Right. And so who knows where we came up with this, but yeah, those extra steps of helping ourselves too, not just our kids, but ourselves to notice that even in things that are difficult and challenging, there are still people with us. God is still with us. It's not all terrible and bad, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, so there's hope even in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of loss. And I actually saw a rainbow on my drive home from work on Thursday. So as you mentioned, rainbows. I've only seen a rainbow, I think, like maybe three or four times in my entire life. And it was such a joy to me, like after a long day of counseling, seeing this rainbow on the drive home. So yeah. Coffee, coffee and rainbows, but also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so when we saw the rainbow, I quoted my favorite hymn, which is a love that will not let me go. And I said out loud in the car, I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel thy promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Mm. And so that's exactly what I'm talking about with joy. We trace the rainbow through the rain and feel thy promise is not vain. So it's not right. just like, oh, rainbow. It's like, the rainbow connects us to this deep promise of God 
that ultimately that morn shall tearless be like that after the night. I, I think that's the line. Now someone that might, I might've conflated two different verses of that song and I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. But, uh, oh, we'll we'll but, link to it. I'll look it up and link to it. Yeah. That entire song, that entire song, which I walked down the aisle to at my wedding. It's my favorite mm. is about like <laughs> things going wrong about our strength fading and about this love that will not let us go. Right. So that's what I'm talking about. It's like, it's the rainbow. It really is the rainbow. Like that's a gift and you can delight in it. But that through that, we trace these promises of God. So it's like the coffee is good, but it's not just like coffee is not going to be enough to hold the weight of our soul during COVID. Like, or one good conversation with my daughter is not enough to hold the weight of my soul. But through that, we're tracing, we're tracing something else, which is like God's goodness provision and also like this love that won't let us go this relentlessness i think that's the thing is when suffering just starts to feel relentless there has to be a picture of a love that's more relentless mm-hmm. so yeah i think it's not just coffee and rainbows but it is coffee and rainbows too and it's joy the chapter on joy which was in the book yeah. which is the hardest chapter for me to write and it's because theologians like are terrible at talking about joy they really are <laughs> this is what i've discovered is when you talk to pastors about joy they just start telling you what joy is not you know it's not just happiness yeah. it's not just you know, we have joy in the midst of pain. And so joy just seems this like stark thing that's like, man, nobody would want that. I mean, it just seems terrible. (laughs) And we don't know how to talk about, well, what about like the joy you get from good wine or chocolate or like, is that just pleasure? Is that just fleeting? And I think the only way this can make sense is in a sacramental idea of the world that these good things touch on something that will still remain when all these good things are not there. Like when the days you don't find the rainbow. Mm-hmm. So I think this idea of, of sort of reaching through the stuff of earth to this eternal hope is really important. Yeah. It reminds me to the sacramental idea and the idea of like having tangible things to touch and taste and connect back to Jesus in, again, I'm sorry to keep going back to the counseling world, but one of the things we do with trauma survivors, if they're in a moment where they are sort of having like disconnection from the present to bring them back. We'll ask them to notice things in the room that they can see and touch and taste and smell. And it's to find, get that connection back with safety and groundedness. Mm. And in the same way as Christians, then we're finding that safety and connectedness back with God to let us know that we're going to be all right. It's not going to be maybe right now. We're not fully safe on this earth, but we are fully safe with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There are so many more questions. I could talk to you all day about your book and, you know, all the things, but we're way past time. So finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. I'm not sure that when we, when you were on the podcast the first time we were incorporating this question at that point, but you are here now. So is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that has been particularly meaningful to you lately? And can you share why it resonates with you at this time? Well, that's a good question. So we have, at the beginning of COVID, we put quotes up on the wall. And my husband wrote a quote from Andy Crouch. Actually, I found out from Andy, he was quoting from someone else, but he hasn't been able to find the quote. So that I don't even know who this is from, but it, it says something like, and I'm going to get it wrong, 
because it's not in front of me right now, but it says okay. something like anxiety is to imagine the future without Jesus in it. And so that's been helpful for me because there's a lot about our future right now that is fairly uncertain. My husband, who is a priest, also has stepped out of ministry and is kind of figuring out what's next for him. And our kids are not in school and we're homeschooling them and never really expected that. And we don't know when things will be back to normal, if things will be back to normal. And so it reminds me that it's easy for me to picture the future and see everything threatening and or everything dark about it but not know that there will be grace there that I don't see right now and that Jesus will be there. So it's a helpful thing to remind me that Jesus is also in the future. <laughs> and it's not just like, it's not just threats ahead, that there's grace ahead as well. So mm-hmm. that's been helpful. We've kept that up on our wall to remind us that Jesus lies ahead as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So even if the future is unpredictable and uncertain, the one thing that is certain is Jesus is there. Yeah. And I often, it's easy for me to imagine what could go wrong and not, but I can't imagine grace. I'm Mm. really bad at imagining grace. And it's because grace is just like a gift in the moment. You can't imagine it ahead of time. So I have to remember the, the idea theologians call future grace, that there is future grace as well. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Tish, for being on the podcast. If people want to get your book or want to connect with you, how might they do that? So you can get my book any place books are sold, as they say. Um, you can get it <laughs> at, at through IVP, Byron Borger, Hearts and Minds Books, which I love to support. You can order it through his website. You can order it through Amazon. You can order it through whatever your local bookstore is. It's widely available. Um, (laughs) It's also going to be available in Korean, Dutch, and Portuguese. So if many of your listeners prefer those languages, they can find it there too. And to connect with me, I'm on Twitter, Tish underscore H underscore Warren. And there's some fake, I just found out there's a fake Twitter account. So, you know, just well, we'll link to the proper one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a blue check, but yeah. So if there's like 93 followers, then maybe that's not mine. So we can think of one with the. And then I have a website to sharesonwarren.com, and there's a way to contact me through the website. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we will link to all those things. Thank you again so much for being with us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I love the well. It's where I started writing, and it's good, good old friends there. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.